0: Well, hello friends. 2 weeks ago, a major significant influence in my childhood passed away. On September 1st of 2023, Jimmy Buffett died at the age of 76. <laughs> His songs in a few different ways epitomized the life and mindset of my father and a little bit of my mother as well. And with themes of escapism, counterculturalism, and a frivolity that masked deeper messages, Buffett's songs ran as a commentary for anyone who struggled with the stereotypical life society dictated. Both my mother and my father had no desire to follow the structures of society, whether that was social status or groups or outward appearances that filled the mold. Keeping up with the Joneses was not something that concerned either of them. So Jimmy's songs about throwing off these structures and living a carefree, non-conforming lifestyle appealed to my parents, and it appealed to me when I was a teenager. Gen Gen X. So his deeper messages, though, spoke of how living the normal, socially acceptable life wouldn't give meaning to your life, and that actually there wasn't any meaning to life. So therefore, it was fine to throw off your responsibilities, walk away from society's demands, and just spend your life searching for your lost shaker of salt. In his song, Son of a Son of a Sailor, he says, Where it all ends, I can't fathom my friends. If I knew, I might toss out my anchor, so I cruise along, always searching for songs. Buffett's songs appeal to those who wish to be free of responsibilities or couldn't find meaning in their lives. And that question of meaning and purpose, our society struggles to find an answer to. So, Douglas Adams, the famous atheist author of The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, says that the answer to life and meaning is 42. So it's just a frivolous way of saying that there is no meaning, right? And even just a couple of weeks ago, we took the boys to see one of the latest superhero movies and the father struggled to teach his son what his purpose was. And in the end, the son only found purpose by embracing his superpowers, which begs the question, how do we find purpose in our world without superpowers? So where do we find meaning if we aren't able to save the world? And how do you find meaning in life? So the Westminster Catechism tells us that our purpose is to glorify God. But why do we glorify God? So this year, we will peer deeply into why God deserves to be glorified and why we live lives of obedience to him instead of lives devoted to our own self-righteousness and pleasure. So join me as we begin looking at the doctrine of salvation. It is in God's providence for me to teach today on salvation, seeing as how I finished last spring with us on the doctrine of sin. Um, there is a sense of profound hope found in, in love. I cannot, I cannot tell you how much the love of Christ has been such a joy to learn um, as I've been studying this, uh, this doctrine so there's a profound hope found in studying the finished work of Christ on the cross after, and after studying the depth of our sin and debt to God last spring. I have great joy in bringing that same hope to you today. So scripture gives us a rich tapestry of words and pictures to describe salvation. So from the language of redemption and salvation to the word pictures of dry bones and a Passover lamb, The Bible is rich with a language that speaks in different ways of our spiritual death and the everlasting life that the Lord offers to us. And this is what theologians call soteriology, just means doctrine of salvation. So this doctrine encompasses a large swath of our theology. It includes how Christ accomplished our salvation and then how it is applied to us. So that includes regeneration, justification, sanctification. There's so much in this doctrine. And because of how much is included, we have decided to take our time and walk through some of these doctrines in more detail this year. We want to think deeply about these things, to chew on them so we can understand them better, and let them settle deeply into our minds and into our souls. So today we are going to talk about salvation as it is accomplished in the work of Christ. And then throughout the year, we will discuss how salvation is applied through the work of the Holy Spirit. So the main point I want you to understand today, I think it's in your handout, hopefully you have one, is that our salvation is accomplished by Christ's death on the cross and by his resurrection. This, um, this seems simple enough, doesn't it, right? Like Our salvation is accomplished by Christ's death and the resurrection, that seems simple. But there's so much packed into these two acts of God. So we will be diving in into the significance of the resurrection and what exactly Christ accomplished on the cross. But before we really get started, I need to remind you of a few things. So you see the doctrines of God, of man, of sin, of the person of Christ, they all culminate in the atoning work of Christ. Our view of God affects our view of how man satisfies God. If God is holy and pure and just, then man's ability to satisfy God's standard is going to be difficult, especially in his own ability. But if God is indulgent and permissive, then perhaps man might just need a little instruction and encouragement to satisfy God. And if Christ is merely a man, then his work on the cross is simply an example for all men to follow. Um, But if he is God, if Christ is God, then his work done on behalf of man goes beyond what man is capable of of doing for themselves. And even our view of man and our sinful state also affects our need for salvation. If man is basically good and spiritually alive, then with a little bit of effort and instruction, he could fulfill God's standard. But if man is spiritually dead and affected wholly by sin, then a more radical work needs to be done. So let's, remember, or let's remind ourselves of what we know about God, man, and sin just really quickly. All of these things have been taught at Women's Institute, just like Emily was saying. So if you want to listen to those teachings again, they are available on our website or on Spotify, Playlist, um, Apple Pod, all, all of those things. Um, we believe that God is pure and holy in his nature. We believe that God is love. We also believe that God is just, and we believe that every aspect of man, our body, our mind, our nature, our emotions, are all affected by sin. We are not utterly depraved in that we are not as utterly wicked as we could be, but we are not able to do anything within ourselves to get out of our sinful state. So the Roman consul Cicero, a very long time ago, accurately summed up the human state when he said, man is a disaster. (laughs) So because of God's justness, we deserve to die the penalty for sin, which is death. We deserve to bear the wrath of God against sin. And because God's nature is complete holiness, sin is repulsive to him. Therefore, we are separated from God by our sins. In fact, we are in bondage to sin, to sin. This is the state that we left ourselves back in May. So do you know what the world says about guilt? Um, Psych Central calls it a learned social emotion that may play a role in successful interaction and cooperation with a group. Essentially, what they are saying is that guilt is a learned emotion that might help promote your social standing and that you should stop feeling guilty. Just stop. Uh, Because there's no real reason for it. It's just something that we've learned in order to, to get ahead or to cope, and we should just give up on it. Just, just stop feeling guilty, okay, guys? Stop it. The guilt, um, but to be fair, 2 Corinthians says that worldly grief only produces um, death, right? The guilt that cannot find relief, that seeks to satisfy another standard for ourselves or that helps us cope with another person's sin against us, produces death in us. Godly grief, though, brings life. It brings salvation, repentance, and freedom. And as believers, we know that our conscience is a common grace given by God to help us understand our need for him. So what do we do with our guilt? How does godly grief bring salvation? How has God redeemed us? And that's going to be our first point today. Christ's death on the cross atoned for every sin you have committed, and it covered Every sin. In the atonement, all other doctrines come together. The doctrines of God, man's sin, person of Christ, they come together to define man's need and the provision that had to be made for that need. (coughs) The cross of Christ is the great jewel of our faith. And because of the fall, we know that we have been separated from God and the relationship has been broken. Everything has been broken from, by God, our relationship with Him, with others, our bodies, the world around us. But God was not satisfied to leave us and the world broken in that way. Right? John 3:16, "For God so loved the world that He gave His only son that whoever believes in Him will not perish but have eternal life." It was God's love that motivated him to redeem a people for himself and to fix the broken world. But it's God's justice that demands that payment for sin be met. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. There must be payment for the debt of sin, and God's love and his justice combined that through Christ he would reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of, this, of his cross. That's Colossians 1.20. God's plan for our salvation was to send the second person of the Trinity to earth as a human to suffer and to die. This was foretold in the song of the suffering servant, Isaiah 53, which if you know me, I'm going to put it in every single talk that I possibly can. I love Isaiah 53. It's also called the fifth gospel. Um, The wages of sin is death. Jesus took the penalty for our sin and the sin of all believers. And in this way, both God's love and his justice are satisfied. Because of his love for us, he could not leave us separated from him. But because of his justice, he needed the debt of sin to be paid. And Jesus paid that debt. So the fall and sin created four problems for humans, four needs that could not be met through our own own efforts. Um, The first one was we deserve to die as the penalty for sin. The second is we deserve to bear the wrath of God against sin. And the third, we are separated from God by our sins. Four, we are in bondage to sin and to the kingdom of Satan. And these four problems and Christ's provision for them will act as our subpoints, each of these problems with sin was solved by the work of Christ on the cross. Um, Another word for atonement is to cover. So by Christ's death on the cross, he covered our sins. So let's look at how these four problems are solved. So by his sacrifice on the cross, Christ paid the penalty for our sin, paid the penalty for our sin. Can you imagine it? John 1 says all things were made through him, through Jesus. And without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The creator of the world, of all things, including all life, subjected himself to death, even to death on a cross. Natalie Brand says in the Good Portion Salvation, if the wages of sin is death, then someone has to die. This sacrifice that Christ made on our behalf was always God's plan. Isaiah 53, 10 says, It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. The penalty for sin was brought to bear by God the Father for the sake of redemption. So what was this penalty that Jesus took on? He took on humiliation and pain, grief and suffering, death and sorrow. His death on the cross was a humiliation but so was his whole earthly life. He suffered humiliation for us. Philippians 2, 5-8 says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." To his deity, he added humanity. He didn't subtract from his deity. He did not give up his deity in any respect when he became a man, but he did become obedient to the will of the Father. And this is what we see in Philippians 2 and in Isaiah 53. He had an inherent right to command, and he humbled himself to obey. This puts that, um, no, and we think we, uh, so he had an, an inherent right to command, and he humbled himself. To obey, and we think we have a right to live our lives the way we want. Um, if Christ can lay down the right to command and become obedient to the will of the Father for my sake and my salvation, how can I not come to Him humbly and obey? Especially when His yoke is easy and light. So, do you, sisters, contend with God's plea to obey? how quickly are you to lay your own desires down in order to obey his greater commands? Not because we earn any righteousness from it, not because we will be punished if we don't, but out of love, because Christ has done the same for us. So I challenge you to hold Christ's own humbling and obedience in your mind the next time you strain against God's commands. Christ came as a holy God to live amongst amongst sin and sinful people. So during his lifetime, he suffered the rejection of his people, the accusations of his enemies, who were the very ones ministering in his name, and temptations by Satan. Christ's pain and suffering was excruciating. So the word excruciating literally comes from the word cross because of the physical pain one suffered. So I'm not going to go into the depths of physical pain that Christ suffered on the cross here because there are other places that you can learn about those details. And also because I don't think his physical pain was the ultimate pain that he suffered. Because he suffered not just physical pain, but many other pains as well. The pain of the sinless one, the holy one, being in constant contact with sin and evil. Who else could understand the true depravity and effects of the evil around him? So when we think of evil in the world of what our world is coming to to do you think that we get a glimpse of what christ felt while living amongst the evil in the world christ also suffered the pain of being forsaken by god cut off from him and maybe the greatest pain of all he suffered the pain of the weight of all the sins of the world grudem says that while the physical death of christ on the cross was extremely tortuous and painful The pain of bearing the sins of many and being abandoned by God the Father is a pain that none of us can ever understand. His experience was and always will be without precedent or comparison. And Jesus knew where his life would end. His warnings to the disciples of what was to come indicate that he knew exactly what lay ahead of him with perfect clarity. He knew the sufferings that would cause him to sweat blood and to cry out, that if there was any way that the cup of suffering would be taken from him. So why did he do it? Why was he willing to suffer like that? Isaiah 53, tells us, Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Jesus knew that through his anguish many would be accounted righteous and that he would reconcile many to himself. So Christ took your penalty for your sin on the cross, every single one of them. So do you gossip? Well, Christ died the death of a gossiper for you. Do you find your satisfaction in money or material things, love, lust, or food? Christ died the death of an idolater for you and paid that debt penalty for you. Do you have hateful thoughts about other people? Christ became a murderer for you. Every single sin you have committed from little to big, from the past to the future, has been paid once and for all. Do you trust that Christ's sacrifice paid for every single one of your sins, for others' sins? No more striving for your own salvation, for penance, or for righteousness. One theologian said to have faith in Christ means to cease trying to win God's favor by one's own character. The one who believes in Christ simply accepts the sacrifice which Christ offered on Calvary, resting in Christ alone. Faith is the end of our striving. So sisters, stop striving and rest in the salvation that Christ has completed for you. So how did Christ pay that price? He turned away the wrath of God from us. So the second need that we have that Christ met is propitiation. So propitiation means that Christ removed us from the wrath of God that we deserve. Christ was able to do so because of his innocence. So let's go back to that tapestry of words and pictures God has given us in Scripture and look at the Day of Atonement. This was the day that the Lord set aside each year for Israel's sins to be covered. A spotless, unblemished animal was brought to the altar. The person bringing the sacrifice would lay their hands on the animal, and this represented the guilt transfer from the sinner to the sacrifice. Erickson says the animal bore the sinner's guilt, and this bringing of the animal and laying on of hands constituted a confession of guilt on the part of the sinner, and the laying on of hands symbolized a transfer of guilt from the sinner to the victim. (coughs) And Hebrews nine thirteen to 14 says, for if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. So remember Isaiah 53, 6 says, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Our sin is transferred from us to the suffering servant, just as the Old Testament, just as in the Old Testament, the sins were transferred to the sacrificial animal. So the Hebrew word kippur is probably pronounced very different than that. I'm sorry. But as in Yom Kippur, or the day of atonement, means to cover or to purge. So atonement for sin covers the sin in the sinner. The blood of the sacrifice comes between God and the sinner. It interposes between the two. If there's God and then there's the sinner, the blood of the um, sacrifice interposes between the two. And because of that interposing, the wrath of God is turned aside. The atonement then wards off the wrath of God from the sinner, and this is substitutionary atonement. A substitute was put in our place to come between our sin and God's wrath. At the atonement, our sins are imputed to Christ. He takes on our sins and the penalty for them. This is why Christ had to be innocent. At his baptism, John the Baptist questions Jesus as to why he should be baptized if he had no sins of which to repent. Christ says that it is to fulfill all righteousness. <coughs> Excuse me. Christ fulfilled all measures of the law in every way remaining free of sin and innocent throughout his life. Galatians 3.13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So to fulfill the extreme demands of the law, Jesus had to be innocent, yet counted with the transgressors and condemned as a criminal. And by dying on the cross, he became a curse for us in order to redeem us to himself. Um, Hebrews 924 to 26 says for Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands which are copies of the true things but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood on not his own for then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is. He has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. This, my friends, is worth dying for. In fact, during the Reformation, many men and women did die for this. Anne of, I have to say this right. Christian told me how to say it. Anne of Askew. Anne of Askew. I'm sorry, I'm saying it wrong. Uh, It's not Askew. It's spelled like that, but it's Anne of Askew. I'm sorry. Anne of Askew, a noblewoman in the court of the last queen of Henry VI, was later arrested under Ble- Bloody Mary's reign. You see, the Catholic doctrine of transubstantiation asserted that during communion, the bread and the wine transformed into the literal blood and body of Christ. Anne and her fellow reformers, such as Latimer and Ridley, argued that this, in essence, meant that Christ was resacrificed during every Mass. And scripture was clear that Christ died once for all, putting away sin by that single sacrifice. So to believe otherwise was to negate the very salvation Christ brought. Under examination, when she was given many opportunities to renounce this belief, Anne replied, my God will not be eaten with teeth, neither yet die again. She was arrested, tortured by being stretched on the rack to the point that her um, joints were dislocated and finally burned at the stake. Anne of Askew died Because she believed that Christ's single sacrifice atoned for every single one of her sins and that there was no need for another sacrifice. Do you believe the same thing? So when the shame of a past sin pops up in your mind, do you hold fast to the truth that your sin has been covered? What about those habitual sins that you struggle with right now? Does Christ's sacrifice cover those? What about when someone sins against you again and again? Have those been uncovered? Anne of Askew and our other reformers believed so, and were willing to die for that belief. Our third problem is that our sin separates us from God. Through Christ's work on the cross, we have reconciliation with him. To overcome our separation from God, we needed someone to provide reconciliation and bring us back into fellowship with God. 2 Corinthians five eighteen 18-19 says that God, through Christ, reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. The death of the Messiah restored God's people to himself. It restores the peace of Eden in the lives of those who believe in him. And again, Colossians 1, 19-20, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Because Christ took our sins for us, when God looks at us, he does not see our sin, but sees the righteous robe of Christ. This is how we are reconciled to God. So Colossians 2 says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. It makes us alive together with him. Our relationship with God is restored as it was in Eden. God reconciles a people to himself, and he has done that through the atonement. So our last need that has been met by Christ is our need to be ransomed out of our bondage to sin. So Christ accomplishes redemption through his work on the cross. Romans 6 makes it clear that when we are without Christ, we are slaves to sin. And because we are slaves to sin or in bondage to sin, we need someone to redeem us out of that bondage. Galatians 5.1 says, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Redemption language is closely related to ransom language. And in Mark 10.45, Christ says that he came to give his life as a ransom to many for many. He gave his life as a ransom so that we would be set free from the bondage of sin. And he offers us a warning, stand firm in that freedom. Don't go back to that yoke. And in verse 18 of Romans 6, he says that as we have been set free from slavery to sin, we should out of grateful hearts consider ourselves slaves to righteousness. So what does that mean, to become a slave of righteousness? It means to submit ourselves to what is right, to what God has commanded not because we will earn righteousness or be more accepting to God, but because of the ransom that has been paid for us to be set free. Therefore, sisters, stand firm in your freedom and don't submit again to the yoke of slavery. Instead, become a slave to righteousness. Our second point today is Christ's resurrection conquered death and guarantees our own resurrection. So how do we know that Christ's sacrifice satisfied God? How do we know that the offer of propitiation actually assuaged God's wrath? We know it because of the resurrection. When Jesus resurrected from the dead, he trounced death, overpowered it, and broke it irrevocably and forever. In the resurrection, he proved his power over death. Albert Muller says the resurrection is the central confirmation of Jesus' identity as the incarnate Son of God. And the ultimate sign of Christ's completed work of atonement, redemption, reconciliation, and salvation. Those who oppose Christ, whether first century religious leaders or 20th century secularists, recognize that the resurrection as the vindication of Christ against his enemies. Christ was vindicated when he rose from the dead. He said he was the Christ, and then he proved it when he rose. If Christ had not risen from the dead, our hope of victory over spiritual death would be gone. How could death hold the creator of all things, of all life? It couldn't. Death's inability to hold him symbolizes the totality of Christ's victory over it. The resurrection guarantees our entrance into God's presence. When we believe and repent, God looks at us and sees Christ's righteousness. So just as our sins were imputed to Christ at the cross, Christ's righteousness is imputed to us at the resurrection. Our eternal, eternal life would not have been accomplished if Jesus had not risen from the dead. We hear the words from Romans 6 every time we baptize someone, buried with Christ in baptism, raised to walk in newness of life. We hear it and we say it, but we don't always recognize that Christ's resurrection is precisely what makes it possible For us to have new life. Sin gave birth to to death, and Jesus' death gave birth to life. Because of Christ's resurrection, we can agree with Job 19.25. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. After my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. Do we hope in the resurrection, and do we trust that Christ defeated death? So salvation is an act of God. Throughout Scripture, it's God that moves towards a people. He calls Abraham. He rescues Joseph. He redeems the Israelites out of Egypt. He anoints David. God moves toward those whom he redeems. God willed it because of his love for the world and for us. Christ accomplished it out of obedience to God the Father through his death on the cross and his resurrection. All we have to do is repent and believe in the atoning sacrifice of Christ. Our part in our salvation is responding to his call. And have you responded to that call? It's important to note as we look at how God accomplishes salvation in us that our salvation is not a process. There is a moment in time when you were lost and then you were saved, where you were cursed and then you were declared righteous. That moment might be a core memory for you, I remember that moment very clearly for myself. It was like scales being ripped off my eyes, and I could see my sin and Christ's sacrifice clearly for the first time. But a person might not always be cognizant of that moment. My husband has very vague memories of his salvation. You might not remember that of the day and the hour, but you're aw- and your awareness of it might vary, but it was a single act in a moment of time. So even when we discuss this year the various ways salvation is applied in our lives, please remember that there was a simple moment when God worked in your heart and changed you forever. So earlier we talked about how Christ's death on the cross is the great jewel of our faith and how that great jewel of salvation is applied in our lives is like the different facets of a gym. So here we have a picture of a gym, right? At the top you have the table, and then you have the crown, the girdle, the pavilion. And then at the very bottom, you have the cullet. So our understanding of the atonement and the resurrection develops our understanding of these various facets. So if you think of salvation as a gym, you can then say that on the next slide, there you go. Our election is like a facet on a gym. Regeneration is a different facet. So sanctification is another facet. Um, but they're all part of the greater gem that is salvation. The, so that's just a visual for you to think through the different aspects of salvation and what it involves. That helps me to think through things like that. And I, maybe it helps you. Um, there's this quote by Erickson that I love. So there is a symmetry and a balance among the different facets of doctrine, which is surely impressive. There is an interconnectedness reminding us of the beauty of a smoothly functioning machine or the beauty of a painting where each color complements the other and the lines and shapes are in correct and pleasing proportion to the remainder of the picture. So this year we will be examining these different doctrines and how they are applied to our lives when when we turn to Christ for our salvation. I hope this excites you, as it does me, and that you'll join us at Women's Institute this year for this journey. So, where will you find your lost shaker of salt? Where will you, y'all don't, don't, that's Buffett, it's Margaritaville, you should be laughing. Lost shaker of salt, friends. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Where will you look for meaning in your life? Will it be in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ? So before I leave you, I want to read the words to John Newton's hymn called Perseverance. Rejoice, believer in the Lord, who makes your cause his own. The hope that's built upon his word can never be overthrown. Though many foes beset your road and feeble is your arm, your life is hid with Christ and God beyond the reach of harm. Weak as you are, you shall not faint or fainting shall not die. Jesus, the strength of every saint, will aid you from on high. Though sometimes unperceived by sense, faith seems, sees him always near, a guide, a glory, a defense. Then what have you to fear? As surely as he overcame and triumphed once for you, so surely you that love his name shall triumph in him too. Let's pray. Dear God, how beautiful is your name and how precious is your word. The work you performed in the atonement because of your great love for us humbles us and spurs our love and devotion to you. And the work and the vindication in your resurrection gives us hope for the rest of our lives, to the end of our lives. May we always hold these truths in our minds as we walk through this life. In your name I pray, amen.